How's everybody's street look? I'm pretty sure the garbage truck is outside right now, but I did not put my trash out because I never know when they're going to fucking come now. So. <laughs> and recycling's just off the table, right? Like yeah, that. we're just, yeah, we're just, we've, we're, we're no longer recycling at all. If we ever even were, I mean, let's be yeah, honest. That's what I was going to say. Recycling was a questionable proposition. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, Entergy New Orleans may be facing several measures to hold them accountable for the lengthy power outages in the wake of Hurricane Ida. Some of the hardest hit communities from the hurricane include undocumented immigrants who are ineligible for federal aid. Schools throughout the city are slowly starting to reopen, and a reality TV show filmed inside the New Orleans jail debuts on Netflix this week, prompting criticism from civil rights attorneys. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, health reporter Philip Kiefer. Hey, Philip. Hey, good morning. Education reporter Marta Jusen's here. Hi, Marta. Morning, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel's here. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hello, Charles. Good morning. Charles, you're covering the beat for Michael for government and cultural economy. It's been three weeks since Hurricane Ida hit, leaving a million people without power throughout Louisiana and the entire city of New Orleans without power. Took a long time for the lights to come back on. Energy company Entergy is taking a lot of heat, no pun intended, from the public and city officials. There was a big city council meeting this week on Entergy and these outages. What happened at the uh, meeting? Yeah, so, um, you know, as you said, uh, I'm subbing in for Michael today, uh, Michael Isaac Stein. He's the one who actually covered this meeting, but he's uh, not available this morning. The city council, um, you know, as we've discussed in the past here, um, is is uh, the the arrangement here is is unique is is almost unique, um, if not unique. Um, that in that Entergy New Orleans, which is the power uh, the Entergy subsidiary that uh, provides power in Orleans Parish, is regulated not by uh, a state body, which is which is the case for most of the country uh, and and most of the state of Louisiana, but it's uh, actually enter it's actually regulated by the city council. So, you know, in their in their regulatory capacity, the city council uh, this week held a uh, uh, a meeting of its utility committee to go over a number of items, all of which passed all of which passed through the committee, that is, um, to uh, sort of accountability measures for energy. And that included the standard post-storm stuff, like every time there's a storm and, and a power outage, they do an after, inc- they, they, they uh, you know, authorize an after-incident investigation. You know, that, ha- that happened with Isaac. I believe it happened with Zeta, too. But this, this week, they've, they've gone a little farther or further than they have in the, in the in the past in terms of the sorts of regulatory measures that they're rolling out. Um, you know, one of one of the items that they voted on uh, this week was a, a, a resolution to uh, prohibit Entergy from uh, from billing ratepayers for uh, storm recovery costs uh, post Ida. But sort of the most, uh, the one that's kind of generated the most noise is, uh, is uh, starting the process of uh of possibly you know this first step is really just we're going to open up an rfq for consultants to produce a report about 
various types of you know alternative ownership models for the local electric company. So right now, Entergy New Orleans has a monopoly in New Orleans. It's a regulated monopoly by the city council. They, they have passed a resolution calling for a report that could consider other options, including a municipal power system, a nonprofit run power system, a, uh, uh, um, you know, com- uh, uh, opening up for competition to bring another, you know, market franchisee in to run the electric system. Uh, but basically this, uh, you know, what, what this means is that they are contemplating the possibility, and this, this hasn't happened in a very long time, I think maybe the last time it happened was in the 80s, of, uh, of taking away Entergy's franchise to operate in New Orleans and handing it over to someone else, including possibly the city. Um, again, this is all very preliminary and, you know, I'm not sure how long it would take even to produce a report, let alone to actually decide on one of the, the options laid out in the report and then go through the process of actually making this happen. I, I think there's there's likely some, you know, federal, there would likely be some federal regulatory process involved as well as a city-based process. Um, but yeah, so that has, uh, that, that has appeared to have shaken energy a little bit um they released a a statement uh this week before this this city council committee meeting you know basically indicating that if 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 they're going to change things up their preference would be to uh merge energy new orleans with energy louisiana which is the subsidiary subsidiary that covers most of the state and get out of city regulation they they seem to prefer to be um, regulated by the Louisiana Public Service Commission, which is, you know, sometimes, especially with this new council, which has been more aggressive than previous councils, is seen, the Public Service Commission is seen, seen as being a little more industri- industry friendly. They also produced a, uh, a, a talking points document that they appear to have um, accidentally emailed to Helena, uh, Helena Moreno, who is this who's the city councilwoman and the chair of the uh, utility committee, you know, sort of laying out various talking points, some of which were perceived to be veiled threats, including, you know, the possibility, you know, suggesting the possibility that Entergy could move its corporate headquarters out of New Orleans. Right now, Entergy is, um, you know, the only Fortune 500 company that's located in New Orleans and one of only two located in the state, which, which uh, you know, some people have seen, uh, had characterized as, as both an economic and, you know, that possibility is both an economic and psychological blow to the city. Um, you know, not my characterization, but that has, you know, it has been reported in that way. So, you know, yesterday on, on Wednesday, they had this meeting, Entergy came in, um, according to Michael's reporting, they gave uh, a, sh- a short um, a short statement, uh, and then the executives who were there for the meeting immediately left, um, which made council members very angry uh, and forced uh, Entergy New Orleans CEO Deanna Rodriguez to turn around in her car and come back to City Hall to sit out the rest of the meeting. Mm. Um, you know, from Michael's uh, description of it. Um, what the you know Entergy was not giving a whole lot of information, not answering a lot of questions. Yesterday, uh, that may or may not have to do with the fact that there's been a class action lawsuit filed against them. 
by a, a group of ratepayers, um, you know, saying that uh, their their failure to keep up their uh, to keep up their grid is what has resulted is what resulted in these extended power outages, um, which you know put people's lives in danger, um, and several people died from heat exposure in right. New Orleans. Right. So so yeah, it's very you know it's very tense. Uh, it's very tense right now between the city council and uh, and Entergy. And you know today is Thursday, uh, so that means there's a city council meeting today, and uh, the council is going to be uh, taking a vote on all of these, moving all of these resolutions forward, which you know is probably uh, a given that most of them are going to pass. Okay, okay, so we just keep watching this space, huh? Yeah, yeah. As I said, this is all this is all very early. Uh, we don't know how any of this is going to turn out, so we'll just keep paying attention. Thanks, Charles. Thank you. Philip, this week you wrote a story about undocumented immigrants who lost everything in the hurricane. They've got enormous barriers to access any aid at all. Can you walk us through who is eligible for FEMA assistance and how does that whole system work? It's really complicated. Yeah, the the sort of baseline is that FEMA assistance is only, or cash FEMA assistance is only available to um U.S. citizens and immigrants with a qualifying status, which is um, laid out by federal law from the 1990s. But um, the basic distinction is that people with green cards um, and some other sort of protected statuses that you would colloquially think of as either refugee or asylum seekers um, are eligible um, to many people who have social security numbers, but not everyone. So there are some other categories of people who have visas um, because they were subjected to emotional or physical abuse um, and were the victims of violent crime um, who are not eligible. DACA recipients are not eligible, according to lawyers I talked to, um, and immigrants who fully don't have any immigration status are not eligible. And then the last sort of important group to think about are people on guest worker visas who, you know, are doing often agriculture or food industry work. And in South Louisiana, that means you know, working in the seafood industry, sort of the um, the labor driving tuna packing and shrimp packing and all of the um, all of the other work that it takes to get uh, fish out of the ocean and then to the rest of the country. So those are H one B visas. I think it, are, they are eligible or they're not. Sorry, they're not eligible. So whole- yeah, the, the underlying logic here, although it's not completely consistent, but but what appears to be the underlying logic is that if you have a status as an immigrant that either makes you a permanent resident or in the country for an indefinite but likely lengthy period of time, you're you may be eligible. The real the the, the biggest exception to that to me seems to be DACA recipients because uh, you know they, 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 they seem to have sem- semi-indefinite status, uh, you know, legal status of a kind here and they are not eligible. Okay. And then the other side of that same coin are immigrants who are eligible but who are having difficulty 
for lots of reasons in getting that aid. Can you outline those? Yeah, so, I mean, there are just so many, so many open questions, but I, I think it's, I'm sort of thinking about three main buckets. Um, the first is that um, they're just big language and um, sort of communication barriers, you know, in plenty of storm affected areas, the, um, you know, phone service went out. And so how are, how are you going to learn about FEMA applications, especially if your first language is not English? How are you going to find the um, social media accounts or websites that are pushing out Spanish language application materials? And beyond that, um, my reporting focused on Spanish speakers. Plenty of people pointed out to me that there are immigrants from Latin America whose first language is not Spanish, it's mom, or um, uh, I spoke to an activist in New Orleans who speaks Garifuna. She also speaks Spanish um, fluently, but you know her point was that there are all of these indigenous languages um, spoken and people who may be able to access FEMA still can't use the Spanish language portals. Um, mm. and, and so that's that's one barrier. Another barrier is um, while you do need some kind of qualifying status to be eligible for FEMA aid, as long as anyone in the house has qualifying status, a household is supposed to be eligible. And so that means, you know, an undocumented parent with a child who was born in the U.S. should be eligible on behalf of that child. Um, what I'm hearing is that either people don't necessarily know that's the case or just that it's figure out how to apply on behalf of a child. And I, I spoke to one um, uh, one volunteer with a uh, workers' rights group in um New Orleans, who said that she's in touch with hundreds of families over WhatsApp groups um, and hasn't heard of a single family that has received aid who isn't, where the applicant isn't directly eligible. So she hasn't heard of a single case in which a parent applied because of their child's eligibility and has received money. And then the third um, sort of interrelated with that issue, especially around families where they're or, you know, there are a variety of documentation statuses or immigration statuses is that FEMA is a is overseen by um, the Department of Homeland Security, which also administers uh, Customs and Border Patrol and Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, which are the groups that deport undocumented immigrants. Right. And um, FEMA says that it doesn't proactively share information with other arms of DHS, um, although they will in rare circumstances. Um, and DHS released a statement before the storm saying that they wouldn't conduct enforcement um, in storm-affected areas. But what I heard from people is, you know, what what reason do we have to believe that? There's right. been aggressive targeting both over the last four years, or, you know, under the four years of the Trump administration, but even under the Obama administration. Um, and, you know, one thing 
just simply giving your information as an undocumented parent to FEMA um, requires an act of trust. And then the other thing I heard was there, there are plenty of resources that aren't supposed to be restricted by immigration status, things like state shelters, um, uh, disaster SNAP through the Department of Children and Family Services. But um, Yannick, this immigration attorney at Tulane again, um, said that you have plenty of situations where um, people administering those kinds of aid ask for a social security number or ask for an ID, um, which people don't necessarily have and creates this de facto exclusion, even if it's not written into law. Right. Yeah, and on the immigration enforcement thing, I mean, it's just when when they say that there will be no proactive handing over of information, that what's unspoken is is I mean, I, I guess it has been spoken, but but you know that's the top line headline from them, but but down in the fine print is that uh, you know if uh, if ICE is asking for something, we reserve the right to give it to them. Um, and when they say we won't be conducting in immigration enforcement in storm uh, storm affected areas for how long, um, yeah. you know, so uh, it's, it's uh, it, it, you can understand why people would be skeptical. I, I'm finding a hard time summarizing all of the barriers, both legal and um, functional. And I, I think that's kind of the point is that I speak English as a first language. I have all of these contacts to ask about how the law works and how eligibility is supposed to work and who someone is supposed to talk to. And I still have a hard time sorting through all of the various barriers that would face any specific family. And so imagine doing that from HOMA where the power maybe just came back on or hasn't come back on in a language that's not your first language. I think that's kind of the central point is FEMA is really hard to navigate for native English speakers in New Orleans where the power's been on for a couple weeks. It, when there are these other barriers, it, it just becomes, um, yeah, I, I, I don't even know how somebody is supposed to be able to figure it out on their own. Yeah, this story is heartbreaking. What well, and so I, I should say the the side of this that was going to be in this story and that we've decided to turn into another story next week but that i would you know kind of love to make sure people know here is that there is this immense need but at the same time the kind of mutual aid work that's being done to meet those immediate needs maybe not to be able to repair people's homes i think that's my big question and that's where fema will be sort of a um, defining form of aid for various communities. But right now, the mutual aid work being done in HOMA, being done in the New Orleans area, is um, pretty staggering. So it's not just that families like the one I spoke to or another one who will be um, in a forthcoming story are victims. They're also the ones providing food to their neighbors or the ones... um, you know, going to tarp roofs. (sighs) This story is about these massive federal barriers to the kinds of aid, and in some ways arbitrary barriers to the kinds of aid that 
many residents of Louisiana are going to rely on in recovering from this storm. But also there is a ton of joy. I don't want to downplay the joy and the um, generosity feels like a little bit too shallow of a word, but um, the depth of sort of care and aid for one another that I was seeing. So Mm -hmm. I I don't want this to be a people are left with nothing takeaway. It's that there's a form of aid that many of us are going to rely on that they can't get, but also... They're filling um, it in. Yeah, there, there's a lot that people are doing for themselves. Um, no one I talked to was powerless. Right. Oh, Philip, thanks for that story. It's great. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are health reporter Philip Kiefer, education reporter Marta Jusen, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Karen Gadbois, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. As an advocate for openness, we provide readers with the source documents used in our reporting, inviting them to check and challenge our work or to build on it through their own research. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Marta, the schools. So it's been three weeks. It's been over three weeks. Some schools are still closed. Tell us what's going on with schools right now. Yeah, so like you said, schools are uh, starting to come back online um, in in many cases in person, but in some cases virtually because they've uh, sustained damage to their buildings. So it is uh, a little bit of a mismatch right now, just depending on what which campus you're at. It looks like The district has said uh, that 29 schools sustained damage. Um, I believe the district probably owns about, you know, between 100 and 120 buildings, Um, but they have 78 schools under their umbrella. So that is, you know, about a quarter of schools that sustained some damage. Um, And 20 of those 29 damaged schools are gonna need to have like environmental assessments before kids can go back in them. I think the real issue there is that, you know, we didn't have power for so long. It was so hot in those buildings. Um, It's probably a mold issue, uh, potential like buckling of floors or other um, heat related issues. Um, So we're just gonna, you know, we've requested the damage assessments. We're just gonna have to wait and see what those look like. Okay, and of those schools that need major cleanup, the 20 or so of the 29, have they reopened virtually? Uh, yep, some of them have reopened virtually, and then I think uh, a, a handful are still getting back online uh, toward the end of this week, um, literally online. But it's just been a, you know, it's just been such a, I think a slog for everybody, right? Like we've, we're in the third year of COVID affected schooling. We went back to school when Delta was surging, and it's just like one more thing for kids and, and educators to deal with <laughs> again. Right. Like, and some of those same issues that we're facing kids when we went through the the first time we closed down from COVID, which was access to, um, you know, reliable internet, access to the hardware to get on the internet, 
to have someone help you if you needed a parent to, to get you there. All those things still presumably are present for these kids. Right, absolutely. And, and I think now we even have probably some additional problems, right? Because we, we certainly have some individuals who are still without internet in the city. Right. Uh, just because of Cox individual lines are being down to people's homes and those, that's, I think, a slower repair process than, you know, the bigger grid issues that we were seeing. Okay. And meanwhile, COVID's still going on. We haven't heard a lot <laughs> <Yeah>. about it <laughs> because uh, there's been other things that have been taking the headlines. But um, meanwhile, COVID rages. Uh, what are the, what's the latest from schools I know there's lots of caveats here, but uh, what's the latest COVID data in schools? I would say caveats is definitely a good way to start this. Um, the district is reporting 33 active cases this week, which is uh, pretty low for them. It sounds um, like a hooray, only 33 cases. I wanna say hip hip hooray. I, I do have questions about testing and you know how, how much testing we've seen. The I will say one, I think very positive thing we've seen from the district is that they uh, they don't actually run any schools directly, so they couldn't do this themselves, but they strongly encouraged charters to require testing before students came back um, to ensure that a student was COVID negative before coming into the classroom um, so we could prevent these you know, big quarantines that we've seen in the past. Um, because we were seeing some higher case numbers and some, some high, you know, in the thousands quarantine numbers um, before the hurricane. Um, and I think like Philip wrote a story covering, we were all kind of unsure and a little worried about, you know, what would people's evacuation situations be like? What right. were you going to be with a bunch of people? Were you going to be in a shelter? Were you going to be with, you know, unvaccinated family members? Um, and what might that look like as far as spread goes? So I don't think we definitely don't have like a complete picture yet based on testing has been so low. What was it, Philip? It's down like 40% right now, I think. From oh, that. Yeah. I, and I don't know this week's, although I will say I was expecting to see more of a COVID signal based on what, um, yeah, what, what we heard about right after the hurricane, but so far I'm not, I'm not seeing that. Yeah. Uh, talking about epidemiologists being worried about the higher numbers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So based on what epidemiologists were saying in the week after the storm, I was expecting to see something noticeable by this point, especially because Delta has just moved so quickly, historically, not seeing it so far. So I'm sort of holding my breath, but starting to starting to wonder if we dodged a bullet. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm, the 33 cases just seem so low. So ho hopefully that that is accurate. Um, but it does seem like a bit of an anomaly, especially if they were conducting thousands of you know, the district says it conducted uh, or tested 13,000 people. So that does seem like a low number for that. <laughs> okay. Well, the cooler weather is one good piece of news for this week. Yes. I'm definitely excited about that. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. Nick, there's a new Netflix series that's dropping tomorrow, Friday called Jailbirds. It was filmed inside the New Orleans jail. It has civil rights advocates and defense attorneys upset. Tell us about it. So I haven't seen the show yet, but based on uh, the trailer that Netflix released and you know some of the reporting, there's a, there a previous series filmed in Sacramento. Um, it follows um, female detainees who are, who are locked up inside the New Orleans jail. 
and kind of looks like a, a typical reality show um, where it kind of profiles some of these, these uh, women's lives and, and kind of follows them in, in jail and, and, and their relationships. So the, the tagline is feuds, flirtations, and toilet talk go down among the incarcerated women at the Orleans Justice Center in New Orleans in this gritty reality series. Toilet talk, in the trailer you see them uh, uh, using using the plumbing system and, and speaking through the toilets to the, the uh, male detainees of the jail, I guess you can, you can, you can do that. So it, it's more or less what it sounds like, I think, a reality series in the, in the New Orleans jail. And some people are upset, who's upset? The people who are upset are, are people who are frankly upset at the sheriff quite often. The, the public defender's office, um, the Orleans Parish Prison Reform Coalition, uh, Voice of the Experience, a number of the, these kind of criminal justice reform groups that are that are active in the city. Um, and, and more recently this week, the ACLU of Louisiana signed on to a letter. And, and one important player is, is the uh, Roderick and Solange MacArthur Justice Center, who represent the detainees in the jail uh, in the federal consent decree that um, oversees uh, conditions at the jail. Um, so, but yeah, just to, to add to that, there seem to be three issues at play that are making people kind of upset. One is one is just sort of a, a taste issue. Like, is this is taking something like people being in jail and turning it into what appears to be a sort of cartoon cartoonish reality series is that something that's in ta- in good taste is it making light of mass incarceration in the united states then you know issue number two is you know sort of a more uh you know a, a prisoner's rights civil rights issue how much access how much ready access are are these cameras being given to these people um who are being charged with crimes who are waiting awaiting trial um and how much time are they being given with them to to talk to them and hear from them without their lawyers being present um and then and then issue three which which nick alluded to um is uh this consent decree which you know the consent decree kind of governs all the operations inside the jail to an extent but the people involved in the consent decree, the part, the other parties, the non-sheriff parties, uh, don't seem to have been fully informed that this was going on. Well, what I learned was that the the attorneys for the MacArthur Justice Center actually reached out to the sheriff's office. They claim early in 2000 when the show was filmed, and when exactly the the extent of the filming is is sort of unclear because the sheriff's office won't um, tell us, but. But they say that they reached out twice and were informed that the show was was shut down and terminated. You know what exactly that means, or what the sheriff meant when they told them that. It's not sure, but it seems pretty clear uh, to me that they were uh, of the understanding that this show would not be coming, would not be being released. So they were aware to some extent that that, that the filming was going on, um, but expressed you know some of the concerns that that we that Charles just explained were informed that it, that it wasn't that it was ending and now that it's coming out i think i think some people were, were pretty surprised yeah and just just to just to go back to the beginning of what you said you said uh, it was filmed in early 2020 i think you said early 2000 by mistake oh excuse me yes not mm. early 2000 early 2020 so the, the the sheriff's office told us that it was filmed uh, it was produced uh, over a period of four days which it seems like a, a short amount of time in from my perspective to be filming a, a, you know several episode reality series but um, regardless 
One of the questions that I have is when were attorneys, uh, you know, informed that, that this was being shut down and did filming continue? And also at the beginning of 2020, we have COVID, um, right. you know, right around March. So that's another question that advocate brought up is, you know, were, was the sheriff's office letting uh, film crews in at kind of at the, at the beginning uh, when COVID was starting to spread? Like I said, the sheriff's office hasn't told us the, the dates of the filming. I put it in a public records request and haven't gotten anything back on the exact filming dates. So that's that's another question. Can you talk about you know what happened in uh, Sacramento that lends to you know the concerns that people have here, or on the other hand, shows that it's not as big a deal as what they think it is? Uh, yeah, definitely. So, so a previous iteration of this show, a uh, previous season, was filmed in the Sacramento County Jail. And there were complaints after after the airing of the show um, from both people who were involved and as well as defense attorneys. One of one of the big things was that they said that that producers that, that producers would sort of manufacture drama um, in, in ways that wasn't wasn't really there, um, including you know letting and and deputies would step back when when fights were taking place on camera that normally would have been broken up. One detainee said that at one time everyone's doors were, were left open in a way that, that wouldn't have that that wouldn't have taken place if, if there weren't people filming in the jail, um, so they could you know interact more. And then there's there's a question of staffing. The, sher- the sheriff's office has been um, you know short staffed for quite some time. The the it's been one of the big issues in the consent decree is that is that the sheriff's office doesn't have enough staffing to properly monitor the facility. So, you know, we know in Sacramento, the sheriff's office ended up receiving from the production company around $50,000 to pay overtime deputies uh, uh, salaries to, to uh, provide more security in the facility. The sheriff's office here has said that, that the production company likewise um, hired off-duty uh, sheriff's deputies to provide security. But, you know, we know that the sheriff's office has been utilizing overtime costs um, as it is in order to try and get enough staff into the facility. So did this in any way, you know, take take staff away that could have been, you know, utilized in, in some other more productive way is I think a big question that that people have. And then as Charles mentioned, you know, in the Sacramento uh, uh, series, there was, there were detainees who talked about their crimes and I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it could could have ended up being a, a big problem for their for their actual case. At that point, um, the other pretty interesting piece of background here is that this production company, 44 Blue, is the same one that makes Nightwatch, which um, follows the EMS and I've covered, and which used to film in New Orleans from 2013 to 2016. They also they, they filmed both Nightwatch and a show called The First 48, which was sort of cop-style following the New Orleans police homicide unit. And in 2016, they took footage that ended up getting implicated in a pretty grisly um, murder case and in discovery, or th- there was some fights over how that footage was used in discovery in the trial, and the judge ended up calling a declaring a mistrial, um, sort of dragging the whole thing out specifically over concerns about how footage taken 
before um, or, you know, during the process of a murder investigation was used. And, you know, 44 Blue has said that it, it didn't do anything wrong, that basically the, the claims from the defense were frivolous, but that ended up, um, you know, that fight over footage relevant to a criminal prosecution ended up getting them basically booted out of the city for four years um, between then and now. Yeah, so which, which, you know, which does raise the question, you know, all of these concerns, you know, sort of these constitutional concerns come up in the jail, um, you know, concerns about, you know, what footage can and can't be used from this show in, in uh, criminal trials, um, as well as, you know, the, the potential access to private health information that the crew might have while filming, uh, uh, while filming uh, Nightwatch. It, it raises the question of, you know, why... Uh, the city and, and these these other these other agencies are are you know taking these potentially serious risks for what seems to be little discernible benefit. But you know we have we haven't gotten any very clear answers on that. Not to mention the exploitative aspect of the whole thing and how distasteful it is. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. I mean, the sheriff's office, it, you know has characterized this as sort of a way as as a, a way to sort of humanize the experience of, of being a detainee in the jail and that that's their sort of pushback on people who would say that that it's exploitative i think you know i can um look at their there's actual language but by sharing stories and presenting the work um of some of our deputies uh and our, our expectations with messages could be shared to show common struggles that inmates face in their individual journeys to rebuild their lives and deter others from going down the same path of incarceration. Um, so that's that's their their sort of um, spin on it. Obviously, you know, lots of people disagree with that characterization. You don't often get as a, as a reporter covering this stuff. I don't get to go, you know, spend a lot of time in the jail, um, and I. You know, to whatever degree the the uh, footage is framed in a in a certain way, and it certainly will be for me. It will it will be an interesting thing to watch. Right. Yeah, I, I suspect that um, you know people pe- people who work in criminal justice, criminal justice reform, reporters, and many attorneys will be tuning in. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Okay, y'all. Have a good week. You too. Uh, bye. Thank you. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week Philip Kiefer, Marta Jusen, Nick Krastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.